the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend, he has deigned to appear. He's back from his vacation. Glad to have him. And Sam Mop in engineering today's program. Good to have you with us. Want to begin with a news story out of Bend, Oregon. Apparently a gunman with an AR-15 style rifle opened fire Sunday in a shopping center on Bend's east side. One person was killed outside the Safeway store. Then walking through the grocery store, he sprayed gunfire down every aisle. The gunman killed a person at the rear of the store. And he himself is also dead. A shotgun was found near his body. Well, the shooting prompted shoppers in the uh, uh, the shopping mall and the Safeway to reach for their own weapons. Police uh, said that they didn't fire any shots. And it's not altogether clear. They probably know by now. It's not altogether clear how the gunman's life ended. We don't know if he shot himself or someone in defense of themselves and others in the Safeway may have done that for him. The incident started at about 7.04 p.m. near Costco. Again, we're talking about in Bend. The gunman fired shots into the Big Lot store that's next door to the Safeway, but for shooting and killing an individual at the entryway to the Safeway. One person was taken to St. Charles Bend, uh, was dead on arrival, um, and another was reported in good condition and will survive those wounds. Employees said that they were trying to get uh, shoppers through the stock room and out the back door. And again, the incident taking place uh, over the weekend, uh, the gunman himself is now deceased. Well, the Justice Department announced in a court filing today that they already reviewed the documents seized from former President Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago and that they identified a limited set of documents that could include information protected by attorney-client privilege. What they're attempting to say is this request for a special master is essentially moot. Well, the Department of Justice said that they would provide more information in a separate filing, but they said that prior to the court issuing a preliminary order to appoint the special master to go through the documents, a privilege review team went through the documents. A special master is an independent, court-appointed individual who, in this case, would be placed in charge of reviewing documents. A privilege review team consists of federal personnel not involved with the investigation itself, whose role is to sift out privileged information. Now, the privilege review team identified a limited set of materials that potentially contain attorney-client privileged information, completed its review of those materials, and is in the process of uh, following the procedure set forth in paragraph 84 of the search warrant affidavit to address potential privilege disputes, if any. Those procedures included asking the court to make a determination on potentially privileged material, asking Trump's team if they were asserting privilege or acting on its own and keeping the material away from investigators. So the process continues. Meanwhile, a federal judge on Saturday said that um, she has uh, preliminary intent to appoint a, a special master, as requested by the former president, to conduct that independent review of the records confiscated by the FBI 
at the Mar-a-Lago raid. U.S. District Judge Aileen Cannon scheduled a hearing for Thursday to consider whether to grant a special master or a representative to the court who would single out the privileged material from the seized evidence. Cannon, again the judge, said she took the exceptional circumstances presented into account. Well, the U.S. government, the defendant in the uh, litigation over the surprise search, has a deadline of Tuesday to publicly respond to the president's motion for judicial oversight and additional relief, including his request for a special master. As I mentioned a moment ago, they spoke to that question earlier today. Well, President Trump or former President Trump will then have a day to reply. That would be Wednesday. A hearing on the Trump legal team's motion will be held on Thursday in the West Palm Beach courthouse. Also by Tuesday, the government is mandated to submit a recipe for property specifying all property seized pursuant to the search warrant executed on the 8th of August. Well, the president um, filed the motion on Monday, arguing that the search of his Florida home so close to the 2022 midterm elections involved political calculations aimed at diminishing the leading voice in the Republican Party, President Trump. The lawsuit launched by Trump last week states that a special master is appointed in cases involving the seizure of privileged and or potentially privileged materials and is needed to preserve the sanctity of executive communications and other privileged materials. Again, Things move uh, moving toward Thursday when a decision will be made. A more of a uh, ripple. Larry Hogan is flirting with a 2024 run, warning against the GOP nominating unelectable candidates and foreseeing a smaller red wave. Arresting at home, Texas Governor candidate Beto O'Rourke has he's been forced to stop campaigning due to a health concern. Now, one might ask campaigning for what? A lot of speculation that he's looking at the White House, given the national attention he's garnered in recent days. In the final push, conservatives hope President Biden's school loan handout could send even more Hispanic voters to the GOP. And what kind of anti-racism is that? Well, the New York Times op-ed blasted a petition to eliminate standardized tests in order to combat racism. Now, this is, for for me, as an African-American, so thoroughly insulting. I'm not going to go into the details why now, but at some future point. But just uh, suffice it to say, uh, the presumption behind it is um, is certainly insulting. Well, caught flat-footed, CNN and NBC panelists suggested on Sunday that Republicans were caught flat-footed and unprepared following the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. I think everybody was a little surprised, but CNN Capitol Hill reporter Melanie Zanona, she told CNN's Abby Phillip on Sunday that while Republicans still believe they'll be able to flip the House in the fall, they were worried the margin of uh, victory would be much less than ordinarily expected. Noting her reporting about an increasingly more negative outlook on the midterms coming from Republicans. One Republican lawmaker told Zanona that the the party was caught off guard by the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. We are losing ground because of it, the lawmaker reportedly said. And while uh, Democrats and I'm generalizing. Uh, while Democratic leaders, and that's by and large uh, the, the whole of the leadership, uh, laments the, uh, the, dis- the Supreme Court decision, it may in fact save their bacon for the midterm elections. 
Trey Gowdy says the Department of Justice owes the American people more than 38 pages of redacted nothingness. And Mark Levin shredded Hillary Clinton and James Comey and called out the hypocrisy of the FBI's Mar-a-Lago raid. He recounted the former Secretary of State's email scandal that plagued her failed 2016 presidential campaign. We know Hillary had a server in her home to gather information, including classified information, that violates the Espionage Act, he said. Levin went on to uh, mockingly ask if Clinton's home was searched or has uh, served uh, a search warrant. Uh, The host stressed his point that Hillary appeared to not face any consequences, despite the fact she didn't even have the protections attendant to a president. End quote. Steve Hilton suggests that Mark Zuckerberg should be put under oath to disclose who at the rogue FBI warned him about Hunter's laptop. Saying uh, uh, tat was a mistake, Hollywood stars have switched up their ink dedicated to former flames. Let that be a warning. If you're thinking about a tattoo, consider whether or not you would uh, support wearing it under Every circumstance facing torture and persecution. Christians risk everything to stay in Afghanistan under Taliban rule. Christians who remain in Afghanistan in the wake of the Taliban's takeover face routine torture and persecution from both the government and their own friends, families and communities, according to humanitarian watchdog groups. There are still Christians in Afghanistan. That's according to Todd Nettleton with Voice of the Martyrs. During the time of the Taliban takeover a year ago, there was a lot of coverage that suggested that all the Christians had fled the country. Nettleton explained that as Afghan government crumbled last year, many Christians did flee because they knew the Taliban's hardline theology and intolerance toward Christians, especially those who had converted from Islam. Many who widely um, were widely known to have renounced Islam for Christianity escaped to other countries, but the potentially thousands of Christians who remain face profound challenges. Those are the people who made the incredible, bold decision to stay in the country, Nettleton said. And their attitude was, listen, if all the Christians flee the country, who's going to be here to share the gospel? Who's going to be here to be the church? And so they made that courageous decision to stay even knowing that the Taliban would be taking over, knowing it was a very risky thing. I thought about these Afghan Christians and the decision they made for the sake of the gospel, not for their own safety or convenience, or to escape the difficulty that they would inevitably face. And I thought about my own circumstance, the challenge we face as Americans here, particularly Christians or those who hold to traditional values. Do we stay because the gospel must be preached? Or do we walk away? We move to other parts of the country where it'll be much easier for us. I hope we're praying for Christians in Afghanistan who, for the sake of the gospel, remain in the country facing persecution, not just from the government, but from family members and friends from their broader communities in order that uh, the love of Jesus might be shared with their countrymen. Well, Facebook and the FBI colluded to shut down the Hunter Biden laptop story down before the 2020 election. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments, but I will be uh, taking a break here uh, for a moment as well. So stay with us. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're beginning by winding through some of the day's top headlines, and um, we'll move on to other content later in today's program. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Facebook and the FBI colluded to shut down the Hunter Biden laptop story to bring it down before the 2020 election. 
The Wall Street Journal reports that when Facebook throttled the Hunter Biden laptop story three weeks before the election in 2020, it was mindful of a warning about Russia propaganda that it had received from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Well, that's according to founder Mark Zuckerberg, who discussed it this week or last week on Joe Rogan's podcast. Well, unlike Twitter, which completely blocked users from sharing the New York Post's reporting on the laptop, Facebook merely limited its viral reach. For roughly five to seven days, Mr. Zuckerberg said, while fact checkers were trying to determine whether the story was true or not, the ranking in the news feed was a little bit less, so fewer people saw it than would have otherwise. He didn't know numbers offhand, though it was meaningful. Molly Hemingway weighs in, saying the FBI rigged the 2020 election, and author Matt uh, Tybee says this isn't about left versus right media. It's about the FBI policing speech in the middle of an election violates the first principles of our society in a major way. NBC says in a statement Friday night, the FBI said it has provided companies with foreign threats indicators to help protect their platforms and customers, but that it cannot ask or direct companies to take action on information received. What Zuckerberg suggested seems to contradict that statement. Well, as mentioned earlier, in a a case of shopping terror, at least two people were killed after a gunman opened fire in a Safeway grocery store in Bend on Sunday night. Officers responded to reports of an active shooter at the store in Northeast Bend shortly after seven. The shooter entered the parking lot uh, of the Forum Shopping Center from a residential area behind the store, opened fire in the parking lot with an AR-15 style rifle. The gunman then walked into the store, shot and killed one person in front of the store. He continued walking through the store, shot and killed a second person. The uh, suspect was still shooting when responding officers arrived at the scene. Police then found the suspect dead. Officers did not fire any shots. One additional person also uh, may have suffered non-fatal injuries. Police recovered an AR-15 style rifle and shotgun near the suspect's body. There's no evidence of a second shooter. Police have not yet identified the suspect or the victim. The investigation is still active. A judge has issued a preliminary order to appoint a special master to examine former President Trump's seized documents. And Bernie Sanders is defending President Biden's student debt bailout and calls for free public education. Of course, it isn't free, but public education is compulsory and it's paid for with taxpayer dollars. So I'm not quite sure what he's referring to. If he's talking about education choice, I'm all for that. Well, appearing on ABC's This Week with George Stephanopoulos on Sunday, Sanders rebuked Republicans and vulnerable Democrats who criticized the president's decision to unilaterally forgive up to $10,000 for most borrowers. Sanders said Biden did the right thing and pushed for the even more radical policy of making public college tuition free. So in my view, the president did the right thing and we have got to really be thinking about higher education in general. And in my view, at a time when hundreds of thousands of bright young people can't even afford to go to college. If we're going to be competitive in the global economy, we need to make public college and universities tuition free. Now, part of the problem is that as the government has stepped in to underwrite the cost of higher education, colleges and universities have continued to raise the cost of said education. But that's the subject for another discussion on another day. Stephanopoulos pressed again about fairness, citing critics who say Biden's plan left out people without student loans who but um, but rather who could still use relief. Sanders agreed that while not everyone who needs help will benefit from the program, those in need of assistance with student debt could not be ignored. Well, stocks took a deep dive for a second straight week. 
CNBC reports that stocks plummeted on Friday after Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said in his uh, Jackson Hole speech, the central bank won't back off in its fight against rapid inflation. The major averages declined for a second week. The Dow tumbled 4.2 percent. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq composite lost roughly 4 uh, percent and 4.4 percent, respectively. Insider reports that he uh, signaled that the central bank will continue to raise interest rates and keep them at higher levels until inflation is tamed, dashing Hopes they will start coming down soon. Powell also warned that rate increases will bring some pain to households and businesses, adding that such hardships is the cost of reducing inflation. The redacted affidavit draws scrutiny regarding whether the raid was justified. Insider uh, reported that the public version of the affidavit was heavily redacted or blacked out to hide sensitive details about the investigation into the former president's handling of government records. But the 38-page court filing otherwise shed additional light on the FBI's suspicions that other sensitive documents remained at the Mar-a-Lago estate in Palm Beach even after the former president returned more than 15 boxes of documents to the National archives in January. There is probable cause to believe that additional documents contain classified national defense information or that our presidential records subject to record retention requirements currently remain at the premises, an FBI agent wrote, referring to Mar-a-Lago. There is also probable cause to believe that evidence of obstruction will be found at the premises. CBS host Catherine Herridge says former President Trump director of national intelligence John Ratcliffe tells CB, uh, CBS um, Herridge he didn't really see anything in the affidavit that justified what still seems like an extreme approach by the FBI plus the DOJ to retrieve these documents. Fox News says Trump's legal team continued. This provides a deeply troubling prospect that President Trump's home was raided under a pretense of a suspicion the president's records were on his property, even though the Presidential Records Act is not a criminally enforceable statute, which is an important point to remember in all of this. New York Governor Hochul is her inhospitable message to New York Republicans. Get out of town. She's since been Uh, roundly criticized for the statement. But the New York Post reports that the governor, who uh, hasn't proven shy about issuing orders, had one for the state's Republicans this week. All 5.4 million of them just jump on a bus and head down to Florida where you belong. Okay, she said, you are not New Yorkers, despite their residents, their taxpayers and so on. The Empire State has already lost 1.5 million residents in the past decade, and there's no sign of that trend letting up. In fact, more than 350,000 New Yorkers relocated during the 12 pandemic-plagued months leading to the July 1st, 2021. Lee Zeldin says this is a uh, this is a reason enough to toss Kathy Hochul out of office November 8th. I'm not going anywhere. I'm a lifelong New Yorker born and raised. I'm going to stay and fight to save our state from the continued rule of the most arrogant, power hungry, elitist governor in America, end quote. PJ Media says Kathy Hochul has inadvertently revealed once again the left's to- uh, totalitarian heart. She and others like her actually have nothing but contempt for democracy or for the actual republic that the United States really is. They have no patience whatsoever for political disagreement and want it erased, whether by expelling all the dissidents to Florida or silencing them on social media or both.
Well, California triggered Massachusetts and Washington to follow suit in banning sales of new gas-powered cars by 2035. And oh, by the way, Oregon has a similar version in the making. Well, the California Air Resources Board that governors motor vehicle emissions for the state adopted new rules that will require 35 percent of new cars sold in the state are electric or plug-in hybrids by 2026, with that percentage rising to 68 percent by 2030 and 100 percent by 2035. California has a waiver from the federal government to set its own air quality rules, and other states are allowed to opt into its regulations, which are typically more stringent than the nation, the national standards. Washington and Massachusetts have laws on the books that were written to trigger gas car sales bans. Uh, if CARB passed one, or California did the same. Boston Globe says the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, the trade group representing the world's biggest car makers, didn't express outright opposition to California's move in a statement issued on Thursday. But the group's president, John Bozella, called the 2035 timeline very aggressive, even in California, with decades of supportive EV policies, and added that meeting it will be extremely challenging, if possible. Vladimir Putin is incentivizing Ukrainians to move to Russia. The Russian president on Saturday signed a decree introducing financial benefits for people who left Ukrainian territory to come to Russia, including pensioners, pregnant women and disabled people. The decree published on a government portal established monthly pension payments of 10,000 rubles or $170 for people who have been forced to leave the territory of Ukraine since the 18th of February. Disabled people will also be eligible for the same monthly support, while pregnant women are entitled to a one-off benefit. The Hill reports that Putin's announcement was made shortly after a, a, a fighting in a small town in Ukraine, led to the disconnection of a nuclear power plant. The plant was reconnected shortly after as the International Atomic Energy Agency finalized plans to visit the region for security and safety reasons, as well as to inventory the supplies used at the power plant. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, winding through some headlines. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Governor Abbott uh, has bussed 1,500 illegal immigrants to New York City so far, that sanctuary uh, city. Uh, another busload of uh, migrants arrived in New York from Texas on Saturday, bringing the number of illegals shipped there to 1,500. According to Governor Greg Abbott, 96 migrants were uh, transported on two buses in efforts to bring attention to the thousands of migrants crossing the southern border daily at the hands of President Joe Biden's bad policies. This is a very small fraction of what um, Texas faces every day. Well, Governor Greg Abbott says Texas is filling the gaps left in Biden's absence at our border. We've made over 19,000 arrests, seized more than 335.5 million lethal fentanyl doses and sent over 7,400 migrants on buses to D.C. and over 1,500 to New York City. While Biden ignores the crisis, Texas steps up. The Washington Examiner weighs in, saying Abbott claims that New York City and Washington, D.C. have functioned as sanctuary cities, meaning that they limit cooperation with federal agencies on enforcing immigration laws. He claims that the move will help make politicians inside the Beltway aware of how the influx of migrants near border states is affecting Texas and other border states. Well, Libs of TikTok, that's an actual group name, Libs of TikTok, has been suspended from Twitter for covering hospitals in D.C. who perform gender reassignment surgeries on minors. 
The Daily Wire points out that Twitter reportedly blocked the popular Libs of TikTok account on Saturday, keeping its owner from posting or logging in over alleged violations of the social media platform's guidelines. Libs of TikTok has become a prevalent Twitter account over its posts that share examples of far-left videos from TikTok, including topics like LGBT activism, critical race theory, and public education issues. Babylon B CEO says Libs of TikTok has been locked out for hateful conduct. The Post Millennial says recently Libs of TikTok has been exposing hospitals performing gender reassignment surgeries of minors or on minors, including the Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. A federal court has ruled against a sex reassignment surgery mandate. The Biden administration cannot force doctors or hospitals to perform transgender procedures. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled on Friday. The appellate court upheld a lower court's injunction against the Health and Human Services mandate. A Catholic hospital group first raised the lawsuit, arguing that it infringed on religious liberty. The court clearly agreed. Judge Don Willett wrote, We have recognized that the loss of freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment The RLUIPA and RFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, all constitute per se irreparable harm. The counsel representing the physicians seeking religious liberty, Joseph Davis, praised the ruling as a major victory for conscience rights and compassionate medical care. He further observed doctors cannot do their jobs and comply with the Hippocratic Oath if the government requires them to perform harmful, irreversible procedures against their conscience and medical expertise, end quote. The real issue should be over allowing doctors to perform sex reassignment procedures on anyone who is not a consulting or rather consenting adult. Students are being told to avoid police if they witness a crime. A Denver area high school has drawn heat for showing students a video that instructed them to avoid calling the police if they witness a violently racist or homophobic incident. The video, titled Don't Be a Bystander, Six Tips for Responding to Racist Attacks, claims that in our current political moment, white supremacists and white nationalists have been emboldened and as a result, public attacks are on the rise. One of the tips following the witnessing of a uh, violent racist or homophobic attack says uh, to not call the police because it escalates rather than reduces the violence. So do nothing. Essentially a letter signed by law enforcement associations in Colorado warned that the video presented negative perceptions of law enforcement and damaged efforts of police to build trusting relationships within communities. We serve Denver public schools responded by claiming that the video had not been fully vetted before it was shown and that the district does not subscribe to snubbing the police. They didn't vet the film before showing it to students. Mm. Well, the father of Marines killed in Kabul and the airport bombing were blasting the Biden administration on the one year anniversary of their deaths. Last Friday was the one year anniversary of the deadly airport bombing in Kabul that claimed the lives of 13 U.S. military personnel and 170 Afghan civilians. Joe Biden issued a statement in which he recognized the sacrifice of those service members who died. The problem was that later in the day, Biden filmed a segment of Jay Leno's show that one of the fathers of a Marine who died that day called insensitive. Marine Staff Sergeant Darren Hoover's father blasted the Biden administration. We didn't hear a single word from the administration, not a single word, and still haven't. He added, not that we would uh, take it because of the way this uh, this happened. Six months into it, the administration sent out letters to the families, and it was a canned letter. Everybody was exactly the same. They photocopied it and then just stamped Mr. Biden's name to it. And that was it. Nothing personal. 
end quote. Another father of a Marine killed that day stated the word Afghanistan has allegedly been banned from the White House. They don't even want to talk about that word, that country, none of it. Well, the U.S. intelligence community plans to evaluate the national security risk of Trump documents like they did with Clinton's classified documents. And President Biden's loan cancellation could cost more than one trillion dollars. That's according to the latest analysis from the Penn Wharton budget model. A conservative group of attorneys general plot legal strategy to overturn the Biden student debt relief. We talked last week about who has standing. So this will be interesting to follow. You can read more about it in the Washington Examiner if you're interested. And President Joe Biden was cautioned against enacting a large scale student loan forgiveness program by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and First Lady Jill Biden. But encouraged to press forward by Vice President Kamala Harris and top Democratic senators, according to a new report. Biden announced a sweeping debt cancellation plan on Wednesday of last week that would forgive $10,000 in federal student loans from borrowers with less than $125,000 in annual income, as well as $20,000 for borrowers who had Pell Grants, a program targeted toward low-income students. Additionally, he extended the moratorium on federal student loan payments to December 31st. A judge has denied the Michigan Secretary of State's motion to dismiss a lawsuit removing 26,000 dead registrants registrants from voter rolls. And internal emails at the Department of Homeland Security exclusively reviewed by Breitbart's news revealed that the agency is continuing to knowingly release COVID-positive border crossers and illegal aliens into the United States. More than a year after Biden's DHS was first accused of releasing COVID-positive border crossers and illegal aliens into the U.S. interior as part of its expansive catch-and-release operation, the agency is still knowingly carrying out such releases. The internal emails among Border Patrol officials reveal recent instances where border crossers and illegal aliens were tested for the Chinese coronavirus and, after having tested positive, were released into the state of Arizona. Federal agencies have no system to check whether remote employees are actually working. I guess output isn't sufficient. Well, on this day in history, 1842, the Treaty of Nanking was signed, ending the Opium Wars and ceding the island of Hong Kong to Britain. 1962, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing begins operations at the United States Treasury. 1944, on this day in history, approximately 15,000 American troops of the 28th Infantry Divisions march down the Champs-Élysées in Paris as the French capital celebrates its liberation from the Nazis. 1949, the USSR tests its first atomic bomb. 1957, the Senate gives final congressional approval to a civil rights act after Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, then a Democrat, ends a filibuster that had lasted 24 hours. 1966, the Beatles play their last major live concert at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. 1972, swimmer Mark Spitz of the United States wins the third of his seven gold medals at the Summer Olympics in Munich, finishing first in the 200-meter freestyle. 1991, the Supreme Soviet, the Parliament of the USSR, suspends all activities of the Communist Party, bringing an end to the institution. 1996, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago nominates Al Gore for a second term as vice president. 2005, Hurricane Katrina slams into the U.S. Gulf Coast, uh, destroying beachfront towns in Mississippi and Louisiana, displacing a million people and killing more than 1,800. 
2008, Republican presidential nominee John McCain picks Alaska Governor Sarah Palin to be his running mate. And finally, on this day in history, 2014, a federal judge throws out new Texas abortion restrictions that would have effectively closed more than a dozen clinics statewide. It was a victory for opponents of a tough new pro-life law sweeping across the U.S. at the time. The Supreme Court would strike down parts of the Texas pro-life measure as an undue burden on access to abortion. My how things have changed since 2014. All right, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break, so we'll uh, continue in just a few moments. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I've been looking forward to the conversation we're just about to have with Dr. Owen Strand. He's the author of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. It's published by Salem Books. He points out that wokeness has been a term that's widely used by the media and the left since 2014. Well, since then, the idea of wokeness has bled into the culture, into television, and now even our churches. Preachers are speaking on critical race theory, telling their congregations that silence is violence and that whiteness is white supremacy. And while these pastors might mean well, this so-called woke gospel is not true justice or true Christianity. Well, Dr. Um, uh, Strand is the provost and research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary and senior fellow with the Family Research Council. He's become an expert on social justice and wokeness. In his latest book, Christianity and Wokeness, uh, Dr. Strand writes about the alternative religion of wokeness, one that is far from Christ's teaching. And by diving into the teachings of critical race theory and its problematic cousin, wokeness, Dr. Strand has a simple warning to the American church. By embracing wokeness, you're embracing teaching antithetical to the gospel. And that's an important point we need to uh, to ponder here today. Well, again, Dr. Strand is a provost and research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary and a senior fellow with the Family Research Council, earned his Ph.D. in theology from uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's the author of some 20 books, including Reenchanting Humanity, a Theology of Mankind. He lives with his family in Conway, Arkansas, and I am just delighted that he is with us here today. Thank you so much for joining us. For having you back on, I really appreciate it. Well, this is such an important topic, and I fear that many of us are using the words or even referencing some of the concepts without fully understanding what they mean or the implications of it. So this is such a timely book. And as the title would suggest, this book is written uh, for those who embrace a Christian worldview or at least have some curiosity about a Christian worldview to discover whether or not it's compatible. Wokeness or critical race theory is compatible uh, with a biblical worldview. Yes, that's exactly right. Fundamentally, wokeness means uh, being awake to the nature of America as a systemically racist and uh, unjustly unequal society. So when you wake up to that, you become essentially an activist against that situation, that complex of factors. And then critical race theory means uh, this, this academic discipline. It signals this academic discipline that trains you to understand that America is divided along the lines of racial power dynamics such that white people effectively function as oppressors who foment white supremacy, whether intentionally or unintentionally. 
and people of color are uh, are structurally oppressed people, uh, no matter what their situation is, whether they are millionaires or poor, it does not matter. That's how critical race theory approaches uh, our society. So these these ideologies, as you very rightly said just a minute ago, are cousins. They're very similar. They're simpatico with one another, and they pose a major threat to the Christian faith today. Tragically, very few Christians are being warned about these mm-hmm. systems, and even fewer still are being trained to understand them. And so that means that the gospel and the Christian worldview more generally is in danger of being hijacked today. Now, one of the things I want to emphasize before we move on is as an African-American, I know that racism exists in this country, but I wholly reject critical race theory. One of the uh, components of it is there's no redemption. It's not a, a matter of identifying racism as it exists either systematically or in the life of the individual. There's no redemption. You will always be the oppressor. I will always be the victim. There's no reconciliation or restoration. You are perpetually owing the victim, which would be me in this case. Um, and it just, it's again, antithetical to the Christian principle of redemption through Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can kind of understand how it has a sort of secular pull to it. If you take grace out of your worldview, if you take forgiveness and unity in Christ out of your way of thinking, honestly, this way of thought makes a lot of sense because it's basically a world of holding one another to account writ large across generations. Now, I don't mean to to indicate that these concepts are sound, but I do mean if you deny the existence of forgiveness, of grace, of getting over past sins, of making societal progress, if you believe that the, the evils of the past can never be overcome, then this is the system for you, because it allows you basically to stereotype people, to buy into race essentialism, the, the vision that there is a hard and fast reality of whiteness and blackness, for example, that separates us as human people. And then you can live in this kind of perpetual victimhood cycle where, yes, America has real failings and sins in its past. Uh, it, it, it hasn't magically extinguished them in the present, and we're going to fight partiality in the future. But this system teaches you that America is actually more racist today mm-hmm. in 2021 than in the days of white supremacy in the 19th century. And that is a claim that shows you that we are not in a system that is actually working against racism and for justice here. We are working with a system that is pro-racism in a new form even though very few people know it to be that. Mm. And unlike the civil rights movement, the goal isn't a level playing field where we all have equal opportunity uh, to develop our gifts and to pursue opportunities. That's that's not the goal. It is to foment the, the kind of disunity that says you will owe me always and I will uh, take from you always because that's just your nature and there's no getting around it. Yes, it's very similar to when in a personal relationship, we reject forgiveness. Uh, We all know that there can be hard relationships that we face. Every one of us does in some form. And we think in certain instances, I'm going to hang on to my bitterness here. Uh, This person has come to me and asked forgiveness, but it feels freeing to be angry, uh, to, to be a victim in our own mind. In reality, that that is to be trapped. That is to be imprisoned by your anger. And and tragically, 
Uh, that is what wokeness does. It traps you in a cycle of anger and victimhood where you never can move past America's past failings, especially those that were codified in law and policy. And instead, you bring the, the anger of the past into the, into the present. And you then indict people who have had no participation, let's say, in slavery or Jim Crow or segregation and are often bewildered by the claims of critical race theory. But that's what this system trains you to do. In doing so, it doesn't free you. It's not, it's not solving the problem of racism. It's actually entrapping you. Satan is actually behind this system, and, and he loves it because there's no forgiveness in it, there's no peace in it, and there certainly is no gospel unity in the name of Jesus Christ in it. We're talking about a neo-Marxist system. Uh, before we go to break here, can you give us a definition of critical race theory and wokeness? Yes, critical race theory is the view that America is divided along the lines of racial power dynamics with white people effectively in neo-Marxist terms as oppressors, and people of color as the oppressed. Wokeness is the broader mindset and mentality, I believe, that embracing critical race theory creates. So lots of people are never going to read a page of CRT, but they can be woke, which means being awake to the nature of systemic racism and inequality in America. We're talking this afternoon with uh, Dr. Owen Strand. He is the author most recently of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. The book is published by Salem Books. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I'm continuing a conversation with Dr. Owen Strand. He is the author most recently of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. Now, when you think about the broader culture, there are major concerns about critical race theory and this call to become woke. But as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, I'm most concerned about the problematic elements of the church embracing critical race theory. So let's talk about why it's problematic and where you see this headed if the church doesn't wake up? Yeah, great question. As I say in uh, Christianity and Wokeness, this new book, fundamentally, this is not the way to view the world, because critical race theory, if embraced, actually trains you in neo-racism. Mm-hmm. It's grounded in race essentialism, or what is sometimes called strategic essentialism. Critical race theory is not actually grounded in the Christian faith or in a foundational truth system. It's grounded in midair. Its feet are firmly planted in midair. It's a postmodern system, but it trains us to at least act as if race is a real thing. And in doing so, it then builds off of that and says the history of America means that whiteness effectively creates a system of white supremacy that entraps people of color. And so we need to recognize this is a system that is making truth claims, not truth claims that are grounded in Christianity, uh, but truth claims that are grounded in neo-Marxist ideology. And the Christian faith speaks a much, much better word. It trains us that everybody is made in the image of God, that we have all fallen in Adam, Genesis 3, a real historical fall by a real historical Adam, and that we do all commit sins against one another. We do show partiality against one another, including because of skin color 
and background, and that is vile. That's sinful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Christian faith actually gives you the moral framework to know that racism is wrong, unlike postmodernism, which has no such foundation. Now, do critical race theorists um, see uh, CRT running parallel to Christianity in that social justice is ultimately the goal? Or do they, as neo-Marxists, reject the notion of religion or Christianity in particular as being part of the problem? That's a great question. You hear different tones from different people. Probably the best known woke voice in America today is Ibram X. Kendi, mm-hmm. a professor at Boston University. And Kendi rejects the form of Christianity, some sort of undefined form, but he rejects Protestant Christianity for what he calls anti-racism. And he has gone so far as to say that, this is a direct quote, anti-racism is life. And what he seems to mean by that is that even though he doesn't give you a fully coherent religious worldview, actually, uh, his version of wokeness can function in those terms. If you will embrace being an anti-racist and working for social justice through anti-racism, you will end up uh, partaking of life. You will end up fully living. So we need to recognize that what voices like Kendi's offer us may not have a fully mapped out religious worldview, but they at least are functioning as if their worldview is the true one, and they and that we should not follow the Christian worldview, we should follow them. And there we see that these are oppositional systems. You cannot blend Christianity with critical race theory or with wokeness or with intersectionality the way people say you can. Now, how does this... Uh, align with or does it align with um, the liberal view of Christianity in which the general moral good as opposed to the redemption of the individual soul through Jesus Christ is ultimately the goal. Does this appeal to um, the, the, the more of a liberal view of, of Christianity? That is the point I make in the opening pages of this book. Uh, I think that this is basically a racialized form of the social gospel of a hundred years ago. So I I think this is new in one sense in that it's strongly focused on solving so-called systemic racism, which is basically a made-up concept today in America from the left. But I I do think it has all the the infrastructure. It's built on the skeleton of the social gospel of a hundred years ago, which we thought in Protestant circles basically died out. Uh, It turns out that the social gospel is not dead at all. No, It's back. It has a new spin. It has a strongly racial spin uh, that fits our age because everybody in America is terrified of being even called a racist. If you even throw the charge of racism in many people's direction, they, they will fall to the ground. They won't think it through. They won't defend themselves. They won't separate genuine partiality, true racism, so-called. Uh, from from fake racist charges, they will simply flee. And uh, anti-racist and woke voices and critical race theorists know that. And very, very few people will respond to the system. Very few people will destroy the stronghold in the Second Corinthians 10, 3 to 6 cents. And that is a huge part of why the racialized social gospel is advancing so imperially today. Mm. And why your book... 
uh, Christianity and wokeness is so important right now so that we can understand what's happening. And the fact that from my perspective, this is a devilish plot to try to weaken the church and undermine God's calling on his people. Now, can you explain the concepts? You kind of touched on them a little bit. The concepts of white privilege and white supremacy, which, again, are used to bludgeon uh, Caucasians in our culture. Yeah, white privilege basically means that because white people are the dominant group, the majority group in American culture, there's just a horde of benefits that they have that people of color cannot have. So America is not an equal society um, because wokeness functions out of the the ideology of, of neo-Marxism, and it believes that everybody should have equality of outcome. It believes that fundamentally to even have a majority culture is basically wrong. So white privilege is a very bad thing. I say this in the book, Georgine, but I think much of what woke voices call white privilege and indict as sinful and wrong is simply a function of having a majority culture. Mm -hmm. Most countries in the world have a majority culture. And there are some societal norms in Japan or in Russia or in Nigeria uh, or in Canada, places in Canada. Majority culture should not be understood as perfect, nor do I think, at least in a lot of places, should it be understood as inherently fundamentally evil. It's really a blend of things. But what critical race theory and wokeness do is poison majority culture, weaponize majority culture, and tell us that when you have a lot of white people, you have this condition of white supremacy. That's the second term you asked about. White supremacy does not refer to burning crosses in front yards anymore. It refers to what happens when white people are white out in public. And that means that White people are constantly transmitting the biopower of whiteness. Uh, They're committing all sorts of what are called microaggressions in conversation, where because they are the the majority group, they are effectively oppressing people, whether or not they ever say something racist or do something racist or not. So as you said a minute ago, this is a devilish system because it tells you that you are inherently racist as a white person, or if you're somebody who hasn't challenged white supremacy. And then if you deny that you're a racist, it says, see, your denial proves that you're a racist. So it has you either way. It has all the exits covered. And that's one of the ways that it shows that it is uh, a bankrupt system. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation this afternoon with Dr. Owen Strand, the author most recently of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel, and the way to stop it. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. And I'm so honored to have uh, Dr. Owen Strand uh, as our guest this afternoon. His book, uh, most recently, Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. I think there's something appealing in general to believers who want desperately to be relevant in the culture, who want to address uh, issues of wrong and to try to set them right. Uh, the, the phrase social justice just appeals to the Christian heart where you want to to see things um, uh, repaired. And yet um, there is a move afoot that uh, would 
would draw us in and draw us away from what the scriptures teach. And I appreciate so much what this book, Christianity and Wokeness, does in helping to inform us not only what it means, how it's infiltrating the church, but what we can do uh, to stop it. Uh, because as followers of Jesus, our primary concern, I mean, the culture is going to go uh, its way. But what I'm primarily concerned about as a Christian is what does this mean for the church? And are we being distracted and, and lured away from what God is calling us to do? Now, Dr. Strand, do you think that um, uh, there is a purposeful indoctrination happening in the media, in the culture and schools and even in our churches? And what does that mean for believers and the church moving forward? Yeah, there are hard forms and softer forms. The harder forms are typically in our public school classrooms today, where critical race theory is definitely being taught. Uh, The left has reacted to the backlash, the just backlash, against CRT and wokeness by saying that conservatives and the far right are making CRT this boogeyman, uh, and and they're, they're protesting that um, teaching against racism is happening in schools, and, and so the far right doesn't want to acknowledge racism. Again, it's, it's, it's creating a stigma. That is not at all the case. Um, CRT is very clearly getting into our schools. To give just one example, the Buffalo school system uh, was outed through internal documents uh, as teaching that white people are effectively white supremacists, the kind of ideas that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And so this is out there. This is, this is this is in the mix. We should assume it's in the boardroom. Uh, it's it's now increasingly in movies. It's in public schools. It's in entertainment, and it's definitely getting into the church. In many cases, it gets into the church in a soft form, and that's that's the way it works with the social gospel as well. Very few Protestant pastors are going to stand up and give an hour long diatribe about critical race theory in, in a pro CRT way. What they're going to do is they're going to Christianize it, and that's compromised, but they're going to say, we need to think through white fragility, white privilege, white supremacy. We need to think about um, uh, systemic racism and structural inequality. And that's the way that, that wokeness is getting into the church today, through the usage of those terms, and then through literature that promotes this worldview, even though many pastors will say they're not themselves fully woke or fully pro-CRT. They're just trying to introduce some of the ideas for consideration. And it's through such weak and compromised leadership that the church is being influenced by the woke social gospel. Hmm. My next question was going to be, what are some of the signs of a woke church? And you've answered that question. But how can we address our concerns with church leadership? It, It can be awkward. It can be uh, challenging, strained. It, how can we approach as parishioners and, and perhaps among our listeners today, some leaders in the church, how can we do that in a way that's consistent with a, a Christian worldview, but addresses what's going wrong? Great question. As I say in Christianity and Wokeness, my new book, life is too short to sit under unsound doctrine. So what you need to do, if these ideas are getting into your church, and you will be able to tell you will know when secular sociology is coming into the pulpit and and the preacher is no longer standing upon the Word of God. If you hear the kind of ideas that we have talked about in this show, uh, then indeed you are hearing wokeness talking. And I would encourage your listeners, and I know you have many, to make an appointment with their pastor, their elders, whoever it may be, and sit them down and graciously talk through their convictional concerns. 
And if the leadership does not change course, does not repent, that's what they should do, uh, then it is time for you to find a new church. And you should do so uh, with wind in your sails, because you do not want to be taken captive by godless ideology, Colossians 2.8. And if you have a family, as many folks will, you don't want them to be taken captive. You want to sit under sound doctrine, and you want to sit under the ministry of Christ's gospel which is not a gospel fundamentally of, of racial hostility. It is a gospel of fundamental unity through the blood of Jesus Christ. What's at stake if the church veers off course, as it sometimes does, uh, with critical race theory and becoming woke, reflecting the culture rather than the gospel? What's going to happen is what happened 100 years ago with the social gospel, which tore through evangelicalism like a tornado. Um, basically, the social gospel took over many churches, many schools, many seminaries, many institutions, missions, agencies, and so on, and it corrupted them. And it caused many uh, one-time evangelical institutions to stop preaching the gospel of the new birth and to start preaching the gospel of cultural change. And to this day, the American mainline is still dying on the vine because of the, the introduction of the social gospel roughly 100 years ago. If we do not want that to happen in our time again, basically 100 years later, uh, we are going to have to fight like crazy, not fighting out of hatred of flesh and blood, uh, fighting out of love, love for God, love for God's truth, and love for image bearers and church members we don't want taken captive by these ideologies. We know how this story plays out. It played out just a hundred years ago. There are books, dozens of books, written about the effects of the social gospel, and uh, it's going to happen again. It is now playing out in real time again. Satan is using a racialized social gospel in our day, and it is time for every Christian to get to the ramparts. It is time for every Christian to get to the wall. One of the major ways you can do that, whether you are in ministry or not, whether you ever spend a minute in a seminary class or not, it does not matter. You can get equipped on these issues. You can read a book like mine, Christianity and Wokeness. You can pick up Bodie Bauckham's Fault Line. Mm -hmm. You can get Jeffrey Johnson's What Every Christian Needs to Know About Social Justice. And you can get equipped. And then you can start talking to people in your church, in your social group, in your workplace, in your school, and you can take a stand. And oftentimes, you actually don't need 6,000 people to take a stand for it to be effective. In many cases, the fire is lit by just one person in a community, in a church, in whatever environment it may be. So do not think that you are too small for the task and that God cannot use you because perhaps you may not be in ministry. That is a lie. God will use a Christian as salt of light in incredible ways if we will stand on the Word of God. Amen. We're talking about Christianity and wokeness. I should mention that you have a recommended uh, recommended reading list, which is very helpful. You have some secular sources to understand wokeness uh, from proponents, as well as understanding wokeness from non-Christians and to answer wokeness for Christians. So that's in the book, as well as a glossary of terms as you're hearing them used to understand what's meant by them so that we can speak clearly and with understanding about this this issue in our day. Once again, the book is titled Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. The book is published by Salem Books just out, and I would highly recommend you read it if you want to be relevant and understand what's happening in the culture. I think you need to to do so with, you know, on your knees praying, God, how would you use me to speak truth to the culture and to the church 
uh, as needed. Uh, Dr. Strand, I am so grateful for you and your willingness to stand on truth and equip fellow believers so that we can honor Christ in our day here in the 21st century. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, those are very gracious words. I appreciate you very much, Georgine, and thank you for having me on. Thank you. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, can we learn something good from the rogues and the scoundrels and even the scallywags of the Bible? Well, my next guest says yes. In his new book, Notorious, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture, Pastor Jeff Lucas invites his readers to examine the antagonists from Scripture and to discover what we can learn from them. Notorious is a nine-week personal and group study into the stories of villains of the Bible. You know, guys like Cain, the elder brother, you know, the prodigal, Potiphar's wife, Saul, the persecutor, Jezebel. Every session has six days of Bible notes to read, and it's structured around uh, questions to help connect if you're in a group. Key thoughts for the session, scripture readings, a reflection on the Bible passages, and questions for study and discussion once you've uh, gotten through it. Well, my guest is Jeff Lucas, an author, speaker, pastor, and broadcaster. His passion is to equip the church with practical Bible teaching marked with vulnerability and humor. He's a former vice president of the Evangelical Alliance UK. He's a best-selling author of 26 books that have been translated into multiple languages. He's currently a teaching pastor at Timberline Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Joins us today to talk about his latest book, simply titled Notorious, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I have to tell you, I was relieved to find that my name wasn't in one of these chapters because, you know, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So uh, it, it does us well, I suppose, to take a look at those who are mentioned in Scripture for various reasons. Uh, tell us a little bit about your passion to equip the church with practical Bible teaching that's marked by vulnerability and humor. Now, these are not two things that one would necessarily put together. Well, Georgine, I think that uh, sometimes as Christian leaders have mistaken projecting an image with um, uh, being an example, and those are two completely different things. And so vulnerability as fellow travelers in the journey, capable of great good, as many of the biblical heroes are, and also capable, frankly, of great evil, as some of these so-called scallywags are, I think there's a a difference between projecting an image and and being uh, an example. And so some of these characters have just so intrigued me, not least because I think, um, for example, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that Israel's negative example is given to us to show us uh, how not to make the same mistakes. And I think as we look into some of these characters, we can look at the pathway we trod and avoid the mistakes that they made. We tend to be drawn to those heroes, people we aspire to be like. But this study really focuses on those who are certainly less than heroic. Um, what can we learn from them and what motivated you to focus on lessons that they can teach us? Well, I think, first of all, sometimes we we can be quick to categorize people. They're either good or bad or sound or unsound. And when you look at some of these characters, I mean, it's difficult to find anything redeeming about Jezebel, the Cruella de Vil of the Old Testament, or Herod the Great, who certainly wasn't so great. But I do think that, um, as for example, we look at uh, Cain and Righteous Abel, that story 
which frankly I found frustrating through the years as I've looked at it. Why was it that Keynes' offering was refused? That seemed kind of arbitrary. But then as you dig a little deeper and consider that commentators believe it's possible that Keynes, very likely that Keynes was offering worship his way. Well, what a statement that is to make in our modern era when worship can be a consumer product. It can be about my preferences rather than ministering to God. And then as Christians, when we get upset about worship styles, and we're pretty Mm. good at that too, what we then do is drag God into our preferences. I don't like it, and God doesn't like it either. And so there's just one example of how an ancient story can speak to a contemporary situation. That is so wise to take a closer look, because sometimes we give the rogues a cursory reading without considering that they are mentioned in Scripture for a purpose, and there's something in their stories that we can glean that may save us from making similar mistakes. Absolutely. I mean, the elder brother in the prodigal story, obviously he's not a historical character. He's a character in a parable that Jesus told. But right there is an example of how passion, passionate spirituality even, can be so misguided. Obviously, in that situation, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, guys who pray two to three hours a day, endlessly talked about the Torah and their interpretation of it. They were passionately sold out to what they believed was God's agenda, but they got it so totally wrong. And as we look at the elder brother in the prodigal story, there's singing and dancing, and uh, everyone's happy with the probable exception of the fattened calf, but the elder brother is outside with his arms folded effectively singing, we shall not be moved. And we see there a portrait of how we can be passionate, but but actually wrong in our passion. Uh, a salutary lesson, I believe, for all of us. Absolutely. How did you decide which antagonists to include in the study and which ones to leave out? Well, I think, um, Georgina, I, 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 it was really a, a case of uh, interest and fascination. Uh, and then just looking again at familiar stories, Difficult stories as well, like like Judas. I mean, without a doubt, his is perhaps the most difficult story in the whole study. Again, when you dig deeper, why did he betray Jesus? Well, there's the money involvement and all of that, but the, the strong possibility that Judas was frankly disappointed with Jesus. He wanted Jesus to be that military messiah that would kick out the nasty Romans, set up earthly thrones in Jerusalem. And now, as he stage manages this betrayal, he's trying to spark a confrontation between Jesus and the authorities and, if you will, force Jesus to be what he wants Jesus to be. My goodness, I can look back over four decades of being a Christian and realize that there were times when I felt like God was someone that I could be man- I could manage. And then when I realized I couldn't do that, I was disappointed by, by, by that realization. And so again, I think I, I was looking at um, digging deeper and then looking for those intriguing lessons that we can certainly apply to our own lives today. Now, again, our natural tendency is to um, study the heroes because they have character and characteristics we want to emulate. But it's important for us to study the villains as well. Um, do we learn something different from them? Obviously, with the heroes, there are things that we want to emulate. With the villains, things that we want to avoid. What do we learn different f- uh, about each of the two categories? 
Well, I think I think that we can we can trace destructive tendencies as we look at these characters. Michal, daughter of Saul, who was married to King David, and she is an example of how um, offendedness, which can start so small in our lives, can grow into something so destructive. David dances before the Lord. Um, notice she's always referred to as daughter of Saul and never wife of David. It's like she's trapped hmm. in that identity with, frankly, something of an abusive father. And, um, and she's offended. And as a result of that, there is barrenness in, in her life. Now, I'm not for a moment, and I, I'm always very careful when I talk about this, I'm not for a moment suggesting that barrenness is a result always of offendedness. And there's, there's never a, a kind of a, a cause or effect um, in that. But, but how much does offendedness paralyze the church? Some Christians go to church to get offended. They're offended if they don't get offended. I think they've almost been offended since birth. You know, they got upset with the midwife. Don't you slap me. And if, if you want something to be offended about, then join the church, because in our consumer culture, there's definitely something to be upset about if your preferences are paramount. But there's also hope in these stories, Georgine. One of the characters is Saul the Persecutor, this murderous individual who was so passionate once again and so utterly wrong and he became the apostle paul the uh, the great apostle of the new testament church planter gave us a third of the new testament and that speaks to us i think of the reality that wherever we've been and whatever mistakes we've made we can change it was it was popeye the sailor man who, who sang that song, I am what I am, and that's all I am, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man, this, <laughs> this surrendering to sameness that can take root in our lives. And Saul's story says that not only can we get a name change, but we can get a heart change. The gospel is about transformation. And so, although there are lessons here about how we should not live, also there's hope embroidered in these narratives as well. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Pastor Jeff Lucas, author of Notorious, an Integrated Study of the Rogues, Scoundrels, and Scallywags of Scripture. The book is published by David C. Cook. We'll be back to talk more in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Jeff Lucas. He is an author, speaker, pastor, and broadcaster. His passion is to equip the church with practical Bible teaching marked by vulnerability and humor. He's a former vice president of Evangelical Alliance UK, and he's a best-selling author of 26 books that have been translated into multiple languages. He currently teaches, uh, is the teaching pastor, I should say, at Timberline Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. The book we're talking about today, Notorious, an Integrated Study of the Rogues, Scoundrels, and Scallywags of Scripture. Let's talk about the structure of the book. It is a Bible study, and it's formatted in a way that one can certainly do it on their own, but also in a group, and there are other resources that support uh, the work as well. Can you uh, talk to us a bit about the Bible study as it's formatted? Yeah, that's that's really helpful, Georgine, because um, as you say, an individual can get this and and use it as a study, but there are also daily Bible reading notes part of that book so that they can follow this through throughout the nine weeks. 
there is um, there are discussion starters. That's kind of difficult if you're doing it by yourself, and so thoughts for consideration in the book as well. But then also there's a, an accompanying video that you can get, and that's got a drop-in teaching from like an FBI situation room setting for each of the small group um, sessions if it's being used by a group. There's also sermon outlines and even slides that a church can take this and use this for the weekends, for daily study, uh, for small group study. So a church can take a complete journey through this together um, without uh, a lot of preparation. It's all there laid out for you. You know, I I so appreciate that because it would be easy to read a story, read the scripture about some of these uh, rogues and scallywags and just simply come to the conclusion that, boy, I I would never do that. I'm glad I'm not them without really going deep and recognizing what they can teach us and help us avoid doing in in the future. So this really does allow your readers to go deep. It does. And I think um, you you make an excellent point because sometimes um, we we fail because we don't recognize our own potential for failure. If you like, we don't do a risk analysis on ourselves. I remember um, some years ago speaking at a men's conference, Georgine, and we were talking about um, morality, sexual morality in particular. And I made the statement there, which was a bit of a stun grenade statement, and it was simply some of us have not actually strayed in our marriages, and it's not because we are especially noble or faithful, frankly, is because we haven't had the opportunity yet and we haven't yet been tested. Um, And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just think it's a good thing to know where our weaknesses, where the fault lines in us are. And I'm I'm really hoping as people um, go through this study and just say, well, that's that's what they did. As you put it, I could never do that. We'd be surprised at what we could do. Absolutely. The opportunity. Yeah. I mentioned it in the introduction early in our uh, conversation that I was glad to see that my name wasn't attached to one of the chapters. Uh, You mentioned that the antagonists of the Bible are more like us than we would like to think. We tend to overestimate our virtue and our capacity to overcome without recognizing our vulnerabilities. And the book really helps us to put those, uh, those things together. But talk a little bit about how these antagonists are more like us than we might care to admit and why it's important to recognize well, for example, there's a there's a session in the book that focuses not on an individual, but the mob in Thessalonica, yes. where the Apostle Paul was preaching. Right there, we have an example of mob group think, where people come to the conclusion that because everybody else believes it, therefore everybody we must all be right in in our collective viewpoint. My, what a what a lesson for us today. We're we're currently finding ourselves as as Christians, living really as resident aliens, more in cultural Babylon than we might think. Uh, we find ourselves in a situation where often the liberal consensus, which which is all about tolerance, but there is not a tolerance of a view that steps outside the consensus view, and that can be difficult for us as Christians. We're basically called to be nonconformists and not to get out of step for the sake of getting out of step, but being willing to interrogate the consensus view and say, hold on a minute, just because everybody believes this and there is pressure upon us to believe it and go along with it as well, is it actually true? I think I'd need to say as well, Georgine, that leads me, if I, if I can say so, to a, to a concern about biblical literacy that we yes. have in 
these days. If we don't know what we believe, we are more likely to rush along with the crowd and and bow the knee to the consensus. And so uh, just that mob, that that, um, frenzied group, can teach us something about perhaps the need to quietly, gently, respectfully break step. Let me just ask you one of the things that I'm hearing quite often with those who are followers of Jesus who believe that if I go with the crowd, then somehow I'm going to be my message will be more accepted and therefore compromising my values in some areas might make the good news of the gospel more appealing. And yet, as you point out in this particular story where there is a mob mentality that goes contrary to what is right and true um, is a, a pattern that we we shouldn't follow. Yeah, I think I think we've got to be sure that we don't label compromise always as being a dirty word. Um, I've been reflecting recently on on Daniel, and he's a hero, not a villain, so he's not in the book. But Daniel finding himself in exile, there were certain things about that, including uh, education in Babylonian ways. Um, there were certain things that he went along with and didn't make a fuss about, and there were other things particularly around worship, uh, where he drew the line and said, I'm sorry, I just can't cross that line. And so the story of, of Daniel and his friends involves a free furnace and a lion's den. But it's not all about ranting at the culture and saying we're different. And definitely it's not about insisting that everyone around us is different. Actually, in exile, the prophet Jeremiah uh, told us uh, or taught a third way, which was, pray for the, the the blessing of God, if you will, even upon those who have, have captured you, upon your enemies. And that must have been such a shock to the mm-hmm. Jewish people. So it's not all about, um, it's always about um, making an argument about every issue, but it is having that sense of discernment and clarity. And if I can say so, even out of the Daniel story, a praying community that can help us in generation of that wisdom that can help us to know when we need to stand our ground and when we need to be not quite so worried. As we mentioned earlier, the the book is designed with resources to help groups work their way through the book and this study of rogues and scoundrels. Is there, uh, would you say there's more of a benefit in doing this study with a group of people when possible, as opposed to studying it as an individual? Um, I always think, I think that whenever we can be in a in an environment of spiritual friendship that a small group offers, that that's an excellent catalyst for, for discipleship development. And so I'm, I'm kind of crazy about small groups and really believe in them. But I'm, I'm so grateful for the way that actually the editors of this have laid this out, because an individual can work their way through it as well. So either opportunity is there, but always it's great to be in relationship with others and and to have the conversation because so often the conversation that is spurred is loaded with wisdom and we can benefit so much from that. Now, once again, I want to emphasize the uh, video series that consists of um, uh, sort of a companion piece to going through the book. Can you tell us once more about that and how uh, readers can avail themselves of that resource along with the book? Well, both both resources are available um, either separately or together. The idea behind this, Georgine, was that there are a lot of small groups that have facilitators rather than leaders. And with our busy lives, 
they perhaps don't have the time and sometimes the gifting to prepare teaching to help nourish that small group. The idea behind this is you can drop the DVD into the player and there will be 10 to 12 minutes of of teaching instruction from from myself and from uh, a friend, a colleague, and that can be used um, as a catalyst for the rest of the conversation. And again, that could be used by the individual as well. And so both those resources are available either totally or together. Well, Pastor, we thank you so much for the book and challenging us to consider, as we ought, uh, those who would be categorized as rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture, lest we become rogues, scallywags, and scoundrels ourselves by uh, right. failing to uh, to spend some time studying what they can teach us. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Georgie. Appreciate it very much. Again, the book currently available as well as the video series. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Have a great night. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.